Stalin? No, I'm getting to it right away. I'm Kevin Leeson. Red Army Soldiers. Speed bumps for German airfields. I'm Joe Fulgham. Soviet Photoshop. Now you see me, now you don't. I'm Alan Newell. Hey, it's either my way or your part of the highway. I'm Torn Atkinson, and this is Caustic Soda. The name Stalin is derived from the Russian word for steel. Joseph Stalin used it as an alias and pen name in his published works, roughly translated to Man of Steel. Joe Steel. That's my new nickname. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. And who do we got in the room with us today? We've got Alan Newell sitting in. Hello. Welcome back. Hey. It's good to be back. I'm guessing the reason we have you here is because Alan rhymes with Stalin. That's it. That's, That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Plus, he was just here when we showed up. Waiting around. I mentioned it previously in one of the episodes that I've done a master's degree in history and uh, two bachelor's degrees, one of them in history as well. A lot of my undergrad work and part of my my master's thesis was 20th century history. And you can't do 20th century history without bumping into a couple of big names. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is Stalin. And my timing at school, the Soviet empire had just collapsed. Wait, did Stalin have affect the 20th century's history in some way, shape or form? A, a, A little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, spoiler he, alert. <laughs> he, he turns up here and there. Yeah. Um, Historical spoiler. <laughs> that's right. So he, I, I found the system he built very interesting. So I deliberately would focus most of my studies. And by interesting, in, you mean horrifying? Horrifying. Mm-hmm. Just shocking. And so we hope our listeners will find it the same way for the same reasons. Well, when you read 1984 and go, you know, the world in that book is probably nicer than it was. In Stalinist Russia? In the real Stalinist Russia, yeah. Yeah. Stalin was the supreme communist leader of Russia from shortly after the death of Lenin in 1924 until his own death in 1953. Born Yosef, spelt with an I, uh, Vissarionovich Jugashvili, and I will never say that name again, in 1879 in Georgia in the southern part of the Russian Empire. He was born with two adjoined toes on his left foot, little webbed feet action. He battled smallpox. (laughs) <laughs> he joined the Brotherhood of Evil. He was the dictators. man. Of, he was the man of steel. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, he battled smallpox as a child and left permanently scarred as a result. Hence that giant mustache that covered half his face. His nickname uh, amongst the czarist uh, secret police was Pocky. Oh, oh, like yeah. the, is that where the name for that like delicious chocolate candy came yeah, from? Yeah, they're also known as Stalin sticks. Pockies. <laughs> Stalin claimed that at age 12, he injured his left arm in an accident involving a horse-drawn carriage, rendering it shorter and stiffer than its counterpart. Others have suggested that he was born with one arm shorter, and it was a congenital defect. Obviously, if you're born deformed, that's worse than being in an accident. Yes, especially if you're supposed to be a flawless leader. Uh, While photographs and portraits portray Stalin as a physically massive and majestic individual, he had several portrait artists shot for unflattering depictions of him. He, in in reality, was only five foot four inches tall. President Truman, who stood five foot nine inches himself, described Stalin as a little squirt. He had them shot for unflattering portraits. Yes. That that is the tip of the iceberg, my friend. It was very easy to get shot (laughs) in the Soviet Union. Uh, his father was a cobbler and a drunkard who beat him frequently and left the family when he was young. He attended uh, Orthodox Theological Seminary to train as a priest. You said seminary. 
I did, and I meant it. After three years, he was expelled for missing his final exams and being unable to pay tuition fees. The official Soviet version of his history later stated that he was expelled for reading illegal literature and for forming social democratic study circles and propagating communist ideas. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, Stalin was particularly well known for his piercing eyes and terrifying stare, which he used to cow opponents into submission during private discussions. And from 1898 onwards, he was active in the communist underground as an organizer of a party cell in Georgia, the Caucasus region. He's got Joseph Stalin eyes. <laughs> Little did I know, the Betty Davis version was a cover. Yeah. Who knew? Uh, his first nom de guerre was Koba, after the hero of Alexander Kazbegi's 1882 novel, The Patricide, the embodiment of Georgian knightly morality, symbolic of justice and freedom from imperial oppression. No irony there. And he was called Koba by some of his closest confidants, yeah. the ones that were still alive right up right up until the end. Yeah, oh, they, they, okay. well, not very many of them were alive right up till his very end. It was pretty few. <laughs> it was sparse, let's say. Stalin led a gang involved in a series of robberies, ransom kidnappings, and extortion, all to help fund the Bolshevik movement, most notable of which is the 1907 Tiflis bank robbery. Before we go any further, I need to know what a Bolshevik is. When, when Marx created the concept of communism, yeah. well, Marx and Engels, sorry, I should give him his, his, his due. due yeah. um, there was no real concept of, of like political parties within it. There was just the idea of communism. Yeah, and, it, totally accepting it from like human organization. Right? Exactly. Or from, you know, human beings, period. Yeah. Um, so in the, if, in, in the Russian Empire, as... Conditions degenerated and became horrible under Tsar Nicholas II. The intelligentsia, the, the educated people within it, usually, well, I wouldn't say they were all poor, but usually lower class but educated people, started experimenting, exploring Marx's ideas. Saying, hey, communism doesn't sound nearly as bad as czarism. And in, if you don't stop to think about the mechanics of it, it does sound extremely elegant. It mm -hmm. just doesn't take into account humans mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> humans, human nature humans can get greedy yeah and right. the whole thing collapses if greed appears mm -hmm. so different versions of interpreting marx's works came apart and there were parties called the bolsheviks and the mensheviks and basically the bolsheviks named the mensheviks they were they were just two different factions looking at communism and saying we think we have a better way to go okay about it. yeah they all had like really like long names like the republican democratic socialist party for liberation of blood and they were Absolutely. all it was all rsldpfoq yeah, yeah. like people's front of judea the judean people's front yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so basically the, the Bolsheviks named the Mensheviks. It, one means right thinking and one means wrong thinking. It was oh. just kind of an insulting <laughs> okay. name. Right. But the Bolsheviks eventually, through cunning and better speakers, actually, seized power yeah. amongst all the organizations. I mean, because notable Bolsheviks, obviously, were Lenin, Trotsky, Trotsky yeah. Stalin, who wasn't necessarily known to be an orator, but no. he was very good at raising money. By robbing and killing Ex extortion. and extorting and kidnapping. kidnapping. Yeah. Okay. He, was, he was an enforcer. Mm -hmm. That's how he started out. In one of the most notable episodes in his history in this fundraising effort was the 1907 Tiflis bank robbery. Tiflis. 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 Stalin had shown a talent for organizing criminal exploits that had helped him gain a reputation as the party's principal financier. <laughs> Stalin and an Armenian named Simon Ter Petrosian, also known by his nickname Kamo, were asked to organize a bank robbery so the Bolsheviks could purchase arms. Kamo had a reputation for ruthlessness as he ran a criminal organization called The Outfit at the same time that he was robbing for Stalin. Lenin referred to Kamo as his Caucasian bandit. So evidently he was white. 
uh, well, it would be actually Caucasian. Mm. Um, the Caucasus, the Caucasian peoples. What's a Caucasus? The Caucasus. It's a mountainous region in in oh, the south, just of... just to the right of Turkey and and below Russia. Okay, so does that mean Cauc- Caucasian and Caucasian are two different words and meanings? Well, or are they all based on the same thing? Well, Caucasian they they share the same root word. Okay. A, a Caucasian person that the description nowadays meaning lighter skinned originally came from from the peoples that came from the Caucasus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kamo, in fact, later on in life, would become notable for cutting out a man's heart when the recruit was exposed as a double agent. Will you be my Valentine? <laughs> he probably gave it to Stalin, right? <laughs> Sorry. Stalin, will you be my Valentine? Uh, Stalin was doing a few of his own murders at the time, although he liked keeping his hands clean. So Stalin had inside information about the State Bank of the Russian Empire's plans. An old school friend named Voznesensky worked in the banking mail office. Vojnazensky later stated that he helped out with the theft out of admiration for Stalin's romantic poetry. Oh, nice. Stalin wrote romantic poetry. Yeah, and you know what? He was actually pretty good looking. Yeah, Stalin, Stalin was a published poet. Uh, in the seminary, he was a brilliant scholar. And as the switch in his head slowly went from being a believer in his faith, he was originally, to uh, an atheist, his scholarship stayed just as good. It's just his focus shifted in school. And in a seminary, if you're writing papers about atheism and that sort of thing, you can probably get in a bit of trouble right. mm-hmm. academic-wise. But his marks stayed very high. Until he got kicked out. So Stalin got, out. Stalin got a hot tip that there was a large shipment of money being uh, brought to the uh, to the bank in Tiflis by a horse-drawn carriage. So Kamo and other gang members started smuggling bom- bombs into Tiflis by hiding them inside sofas. Uh, only wow. a few weeks before the robbery, Camo accidentally detonated a bomb while trying to set the fuse, which severely injured his eye and left a permanent scar, but not so much that he couldn't take place in the robbery a few weeks later. Hmm. Uh, at about 10.30 a.m. in 1907, the robbers hit the carriage with grenades, then began shooting the security men in the public square. The bomb blasts were so strong that they knocked over nearby chimneys and broke every pane of glass for a mile around. Whoa. That's a big yeah. grenade. The heist was organized by Stalin, laid out by Stalin, or mm-hmm. masterminded. Part of their tactics were to throw the bombs under the horses to disembowel them and blow their legs off. <laughs> uh, and it worked, apparently. Well, yeah. unfortunately, one horse was still alive and actually bolted, pulling the stagecoach along with it, and the robbers were on <laughs> oh, foot. money! So they were chasing it and eventually had to throw another grenade that succeeded in blowing off the horse's oh, legs. God. <laughs> They got away with 341,000 rubles, which corrected for 2008 U.S. dollars was 3.4 million in okay. U.S. dollars. So okay. a uh, good chunk of change. Uh, the attack killed 40 people and injured 50 others, mostly innocent civilians. A witness stated in a police report that Stalin had observed the ruthless bloodshed smoking a cigarette from the courtyard of a mansion. Despite the success of the robbery and the large sum involved, the Bolsheviks could not use most of the larger banknotes because the serial numbers were known to the police. Oh. Lenin organized a plan to have various sympathetic individuals and agents cash the larger banknotes at various locations throughout Europe, but the strategy failed, resulting in a number of arrests and negative worldwide publicity, including the Caucasian bandit himself, Kamo, got taken in Finland. Did he name Stalin and Stalin was arrested and that's that? No, they kept the trap shut. Okay. Stalin actually was very good at, at, uh, at prison escapes. He was. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some interesting... He, he was, during his career as a party enforcer, leading up to his first meeting with Lenin, where, where he moved into the higher apparatus of the party, he was sent... Uh, he, he was banished six times, arrested, and sent off to the extremes of the country. He was a troublemaker. He was, but he always seemed to make his way back. He just 
leave and, and come back. Mm. And it's given rise in certain, um, mostly Russian historians, He's contemporary ones, that he was actually working with the Tsarist secret police. And not that, you know, his entire years as leader of, of Stalinist Russia, he was a secret, you know, agent of the Tsar. But most of them were at that time. They would just tell the, the Tsarist police whatever they wanted to hear, get a paycheck and, and yeah. move on. Yeah, and mm-hmm. use that as kind of their, uh, their, their, their sort of day job. Exactly. As an informer. Exactly. And their night job was raise, was blowing horses was blowing up and raising up. money for, <laughs> for the Bolsheviks. And what's funny is they, they had two women in their gang on the bank robbery who were um, out, you know, parading with parasols to distract the police that were in the neighborhood. Because the police oh. had a pretty good idea that maybe, the heist was Maybe planned. flashing a leg or something. Uh, so, yeah, showing a bit of ankle. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And these two women afterwards, they took the money and they sewed it into a mattress of one of the government officials in the village. And he slept on it for several days until they got the money out. So they're they're scouring the hillside looking for the money and then going home at night and sleeping on it. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, his bed, oh, I love the way my bed felt for those few days. I, I wish I knew what happened. So perhaps we see a little insight into Stalin's character in these experiences where like, he's, he's a thug and a murderer and an extortionist mm-hmm. and a kidnapper. And, and a uh, smoker. <laughs> a midnight joker <laughs> heavy smoker heavy boozer his whole life Lenin appointed Stalin the people's commissar for nationalities and a member of the communist politburo it's a politburo under the the I was going to say Byzantine, but that's probably a wrong word. Under the confusing network of government systems and, and offices and positions, there was a Politburo, the central committee, uh, and these were the two highest levels of government. The ruling bodies. Um, the ruling bodies. Under the under Stalin, the Politburo was five, I think six people. Uh, the Central Committee was 10, 12 people. So power was really concentrated in just a few hands. Would there be a Canadian or American analog to a Politburo these well, like, days? Like, uh, like the cabinet. Well, I was going to say probably more like the presidents of the five big banks in Canada. Yeah, oh, there you go. For a more <laughs> cynical response. For a more cynical response. Okay. Yeah, it would be, it would be Prime Minister Harper's cabinet. Okay. Today would be okay. But the difference with the cabinet in Canada is that there is an actual parliament that sort of like passes all the laws and the cabinet kind of just drives policy. Whereas this was everything was in these like the hands of these five to 12 people. Exactly. There, yeah. there were massive government bodies that, that took on the day to day dealings of government. But realistically, all foreign policy, all, all internal policy, everything yeah. was concentrated mm-hmm. just in this. Everyone could fit in one room. So okay. is, it, is it short for a political bureau? Is yes. That, okay. yeah. Oh, they love crushing words together to make new ones. Yeah. Portmanteau words. Portmanteau, Portmanteau words. words. Mm-hmm. If you read 1984, like Mini True and all the different mm. terms like that in, in Newspeak are based on what was going on there. Even though Trotsky was the People's Commissar of War, Stalin led several red detachments personally in the civil war against anti-communist forces. It's during this time that tensions between Stalin and Trotsky reached its peak. Stalin would have villages burned in order to intimidate the peasantry into submission and discourage bandit raids on food shipments. In May 1919, in order to stem mass desertions on the Western Front, Stalin had deserters publicly executed as traitors. That's not entirely unusual for the era, though. No, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Stalin ordered the killings of former Tsarist officers in the Red Army as counter-revolutionaries, which deprived the army of its most experienced officers and a policy that Trotsky vehemently opposed. According to one account, Stalin sealed dozens of officers inside a barge, which he then had sunk. The official report declared it as an accident. Mm-hmm. Oops, we accidentally barred the doors from the outside. No, I think they were just having a party, you know, yeah. having a few beers. They got a little bit soused. The barge sunk and none of them could swim. Right. Sadly, it seems Soviet Russia and, was very accident prone. And the, yeah, and the right. doors and windows were nailed shut. 
Damn the luck. Because <laughs> when, no, when you throw a party, you nail all the windows and doors shut so that interlopers can't get in to ruin your party. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's yes. how it works. Well, nowadays we just chain the doors in nightclubs. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Call back to urban fires. Stalin was the chief organizer of the Red Terror in Tsaritsyn. Wasn't that like a tick villain or something? The Red Terror? Uh, Red <laughs> oh, Menace? the Red Menace. Red Menace. <laughs> okay, carry on. Uh, Tsaritsyn, which was later renamed Stalingrad, recorded atrocities during this period included victims were tied to planks and slowly fed into furnaces or tanks of boiling water. Okay, that's the lesser of two evils. Would you rather yeah. be fed into a furnace or a tank of boiling water? Yeah, well, yeah. Scalpings were commonplace. Oh, wow. As well as hand flayings, the skin was peeled off a of victim's hands to produce gloves. <laughs> oh, no. I that's challenge in, you that's in to quotes. a duel. Gloves. Oh, 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 God. Here's oh. <laughs> my question, and maybe we need, a, we need Dr. Rob for this one. If you did that and you didn't die, would your skin grow back over your hands? Uh, it, would, it would It would scar sh- over. A big scab. Yeah. Giant scab. Ooh, scab hands. Scab hands. Mm-hmm. The new dance craze. <laughs> you got to hand it to these guys. They're very, very inventive. Oh, some of these are terrible. They would roll naked people around in barrels studded internally with nails. <laughs> oh, God. Roll yeah. out the barrel. <laughs> That bloody barrel of pulp. And you would make it so some, like, one part of the barrel's nails are only in, like, a half an inch. But uh-huh. other, another part, they're in, like, really deep. So as you roll, you get different depths of oh. penetration. I feel like after the first couple rolls, you'd be stuck to one side. Oh, that's an interesting yeah, possibility. Yeah, <laughs> and then, but then they'd stop rolling it. You'd be stuck at the top. And, you would, <laughs> and then you'd go, eh, oh, and oh. land on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Victims might be crucified or stoned to death. Boring. Some would place rats in iron tubes sealed at one end with wire netting and the other placed against the body of a prisoner. We call back to the rats episode. With tubes being heated until the rats gnawed through the victim's body in an effort to escape. So he's obviously a a history buff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A common practice was to take a husband hostage and wait for his wife to come and purchase his life with her body. Oh, so prostituted out I, to save the husband? Is that that's the idea? I, guess I think so. that's the idea. Like, and so that's where your your sort of your communist principles. Okay, the red terror is to get rid of all the non-communists, and you know what's what not communist yet? Women's vaginas. We need to plunder those babies. Yeah, they need to be shared for the good of all. And yeah, they did. Yeah. Uh-huh. The clergy suffered particularly brutal abuse. An estimated three thousand were put to death in 1918 alone. Priests, monks, and nuns might be thrown into cauldrons of boiling tar, uh-huh. strangled. Oh, you know what? Hmm? The advantage of throwing nuns and priests into cauldrons of boiling tar, they don't need their Cossacks anymore. They're going to be permanently black. There you go. Right? And they won't need <clears throat> much of anything for very long because mm-hmm. they'll be dead soon. Mm-hmm. Strangled, given communion with melted lead. Oh. Wait, communion, that's where you- That's the wafer. You eat the little wafer? Yeah. And drink the wine? Oh, mm-hmm. so you, yeah. do you get like a wafer-sized hole in your tongue that goes all the way through? or they just... I think they probably just take like a like a big, you know- yeah. Pour it down your throat. And just pour it down they, your throat. They probably give you the wafer and then pour molten lead down your throat. And they probably throw it a little like, where's your God now? This is the blood of Christ. Yeah, this is the blood of Stalin, man of steel. Oh, there But as we established, lead. lead is sweet. There's a silver <laughs> lining taste, there. Doesn't taste that bad. Hot and sweet. Or drowned in holes in the ice. Oh, what a nice way to go. I tell you, with all the other options, I, uh, yeah, that I would take, be the one that I would choose. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, and I don't like cold. Mm-hmm. And I would still choose that. No, and eventually they just uh, exhausted themselves and just, I'll oh, just shoot them. Yeah. Just shoot them. Yeah. You know, all this crazy creative stuff is just so much work and it's not really that fun. Been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Shoot them. 
1922, Lenin suffered a stroke and Stalin was appointed general secretary to the party central committee and act as, acted as Lenin's intermediary with the outside world. But while this was going on, the pair quarreled behind closed doors and their relationship quickly deteriorated. Lenin, in fact, dictated increasingly disparaging notes about Stalin. He criticized his political views. He, called, he said he had rude manners. He had excessive ambition and even suggested that Stalin should be removed from the position of general secretary. But guess what? Nobody saw these notes. Well, they, oh. they were read eventually, Stalin's testament. I have a copy of it actually right here. Right, but Stalin forged an alliance with Kamenev and Zinoviev, Zinoviev against, Trotsky. against Trotsky in order to keep the, the Lenin's testament from being read. Well, they kept it just who were those the, two guys? Even within the Bolsheviks, at the very top, there were the guys on the right and the guys on the left. Okay. Yeah, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Trotsky were the big intellectuals. They were. Yeah. And they were way on the right. Um, so... What, what uh, Stalin would do is he would link up with a couple guys on the right to knock off guys on the left and then quietly go to the guys on the left to knock off guys on the right. Okay. And nobody knew he was, was doing this. If, if you saw the HBO uh, film on Stalin, a three-hour-long TV movie, epic, yeah. <laughs> um, there is the scene where they're about to read or, or where they do read Stalin's te- or Lenin's testament. And it says, you know, basically, Comrade Stalin, having become Secretary General, has unlimited authority concentrated in his hands, and I am not sure whether he will always be capable of using that authority with sufficient caution. Right. Uh, and then, yes, it goes on and it says, Stalin is too rude. Um, <laughs> so, so these weren't heard at the necessary time? Well, they were, actually. So Stalin's sitting there. He already knows how this is going to play out because nothing surprised Stalin. He had everything taken is, care of. This is a very small room. Very There's small only, room. Only a handful of people in this room. Trotsky's sitting with... And they're talking about reading it out to the General Assembly. Exactly. Like basically releasing it publicly. To everyone. Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, who hated Stalin because he called her all kinds of horrible names, sitting with Trotsky goes, here's your chance. Get up. You can sink him. And he goes, no, no, let, let Zinoviev speak. And Zinoviev gets up and goes, Stalin's great. We've got to keep him. Lenin was sick and old and didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. And Trotsky's was outmaneuvered and yeah. he just kept losing the, the maneuvering game because trotsky's allies had always been kamenev and zinoviev like they were the exactly. same they were allied politically they were allied intellectually they all like knew each other for decades and that they'd always been on the same side and somehow stalin convinced them to turn on trotsky well they thought them. they thought stalin would be easy to knock off once they had consolidated right. power in their own hands oh the Exactly. In 1924, Lenin died and a power struggle began. But seeing as how Stalin had already been general secretary for the previous two years, he had pretty much effectively consolidated enough power to ensure continued control. One interesting note I had in this period, in 1927, Stalin requested medical help for his insomnia, anger, and severe anxiety disorders. His doctors diagnosed him as having a typical clinical paranoia and recommended medical treatment by being like sent to a sanitarium and stuff like that. And the next day, the chief psychiatrist and all of his assistants died from poisoning. It's another one of those Soviet wow. accidents. It's just it's terrible. <laughs> well, I, like, I like the fact that they go, you know what? You're really paranoid right now. You could use a break. Let's send you off to a mental hospital where you can like take some medication and like take a break yep. and get it easy. Because you're kind of like you're suspecting people who aren't guilty of things of being guilty of things. And the very next day, all of them are poisoned to death. Yeah. You should have looked at take, take it a step back and go, oh, wait a minute. That was something paranoid that I just did right there. I really <laughs> do need a break. 
Well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. So right about this time is when Stalin started to institute his economic policies of strict centralized planning called the five-year plans. The immediate effect they had on the uh, Russian economy was devastating the economy and resulting in mass famines, most notably in central Russia and the Ukraine. We deal with this at length in our famine episode. Mm-hmm. It's called the Holodomor. So I encourage anybody who wants to know more about this period, go and check out the famine episode from a few seasons ago. Uh, Popular resistance to Stalin's policies of nationalization of private lands and collective farming by independent farmers known as kulaks brought about brutal retaliation. Millions of kulaks were either forced off their land or executed outright. Uh, And this policy effectively turned Russia from an agrarian to industrialized society incredibly fast. But the cost of it was the resulting deaths in around 6 to 10 million peasants from the period 1926 to 1934. Yeah. Don't really know how many... Mm-hmm. No, there's no numbers. And numbers that do exist were often inflated to impress the Central Committee. Mm-hmm. What year What year was this? Uh, this was a, a span to period from 26 to 34. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the five-year plans, that two successive back-to-back five-year plans. Well, there, there were a total of 13 pl- five-year plans. Oh, okay. But the big In the ones. entire history. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the last one ended as the Soviet Union collapsed under Gorbachev. He mm-hmm. shut down the last five-year plan. Most five-year plans didn't succeed, mm-hmm. but the earliest ones usually Unless did. by success you mean killing 10 million peasants. Well, that's it. If you can squeeze enough blood out of the workers to grease the machines, mm-hmm. everything's, you know, quite good. Uh, the plans were shockingly brutal. I mean, they were very successful. They they began, Stalin gave a a speech and he said, we are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must make good this distance in 10 years. Which he, which he he effectively did by the, he did by, by 1940, by the time World War II rolled around, they were getting close to on par with the other westernized they had they had a steel industry an iron industry they had electrification in most of the major cities they were building hydroelectric dams cities beyond the arctic circle um, massive canal systems uh, phenomenal highway systems well you need lots of gulag prisoners to dig all those trenches so lots of people had to go to the gulags and that's how it worked we're building a hydroelectric dam we need forty six thousand prisoners and we're going to arrest forty six thousand people yeah so a kulak is just an urban farmer. No. Well, a, a wealthy farmer. A successful. Yeah. Uh, um, they're often described as the most able farmers, which meant they were doing better than everyone else around them. And that's not allowed. Well, it isn't. Um, kulak actually in Russian means hand, or sorry, fist. So it, it kind of means tight-fisted is right. the way it was looked at. So these people were simply rounded up and sent to gulags or banished, you know, beyond the edge of the country. Just because they're too successful. Well, exactly. they wanted their farms, too. Right. Okay. Well, you can't be independently successful in a true communist, communist paradise. paradise. They yeah. were also, in the earliest stages of it, against collectivization of the farms. Right. Because that simply doesn't work. Well, and not only that, their farms were the successful, and they were going to get lumped in with exactly. the unsuccessful ones. Exactly. Right? right. And so a lot of slackers and people with grudges took the opportunity to inform on people they just didn't like. Right. And he was gone the next day. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about the, the Kirov incident? Uh, I was just going to mention two things about the five-year plans, about okay. how brutal they are. Yeah. One of the construction projects was the Moscow Canal. It's 128 kilometers in length, uh, and it connects Moscow basically with five seas. So it was, it was wonderful for economy and, and business mm-hmm. and that. However, it was built at certain numbers of times. People were actually only using their hands. There were no tools. So they would just run people through you know, work them to death and replace the bodies the next day with more arrests. 22,000 prisoners died building that canal. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the Panama Canal, 
much longer, much bigger, greater undertaking, and a handful of casualties. Right. Yeah. So, also, uh, if you've ever had the opportunity to see the British uh, series Long Way Round with um, Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor, where they motorcycle, they take one. a motorcycle trip yeah. around the world. As they're going through eastern Siberia, they travel on the Road of Bones. And this was a highway, again, built in Siberia by prisoners working with hands, rocks. The ground is in permafrost. So when the workers died, they would just seal them up in the road, tar over it, and keep going. So this entire highway, which is 1,900 kilometers long, is festooned with human remains, the full length of it. And the people were just disposable. And that's hydroelectric dams, the same thing. Pave your road with skeletons. Who knew? You get good traction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't need nearly such good tread on your tires. There's too many speed bumps, though. Uh-huh. Well, this got the five-year plans kind of leads into the so that takes us into the 30s, yes. right? Yeah. And then um, there's kind of a precursor incident to what we now know of as you know the period of purges, the under Great Stalin, Purge, right? Or the Great Terror. As it's so, what called. was it exactly that actually kind of kicked off the Great Purge? It was an assassination. Sergei Kirov was the head of the. Um, Communist Party organization in Leningrad. He was extremely popular, a good-looking man, very successful, uh, successful with the ladies, uh, a brilliant thinker, and uh, a sportsman. I mean, he presented Stalin, if you saw that film again, he, he gives him a polar bear, and Stalin goes, how far were you from it when you shot it? And he said, 10 meters. Mm-hmm. He was very brave, very brash, and everyone loved him except Stalin, who saw him as a threat. Well, yeah, because, of course, uh, you know, Stalin's kind of like, you know, king, uh, you know, king shit, right, at the, exactly. at, the, at the heap of the communist pile. And you got this, like, good-looking, fast-talking, womanizing guy who likes to go out and shoot polar bears coming up the ranks, running the party organization in one of the most important cities in the empire. Exactly. And Leningrad. Then, uh, and he's palling around with Stalin, and Stalin's just thinking about, how do I get And he's publicly disagreed with Stalin over right. matters of policy. So that's, that's, not, that's not conducive to health. That's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On October 15th, according to former NKVD officer and author Alexander Orlov, Stalin ordered the assassination himself. Yeah. They recruited a guy named Leonid Nikolaev for the job. On the 15th of October, Nikolaev entered the Smolny Institute where Kirov worked, but was arrested after a guard found a revolver in his briefcase. Hmm. Two hours later, Nikolaev's briefcase and loaded revolver were returned to him. And he was told to leave the building immediately. Nikolaev comes back. He's, he's still got his gun. Um, <laughs> he comes back. And on December 1st, 1934, he enters into the Smolny Institute, which had been a former girls' school and was now uh, the uh, offices of the um, Communist Party in Leningrad. He makes his way to the third floor. No security guards. No one stops him. And he just kind of leans against the wall. Kirov comes in with his one bodyguard, who was an older gentleman who, who also would make his lunch. So not, you know, not the most frightening of bodyguards. <laughs> right. Like bodyguard slash butler? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he actually bottles off to go make lunch. So yeah. And his name Kirov. was Commissar Borisov. Right. So Kirov's alone. All the guard detail had been removed. The four guards, he, he had had his guard detail stripped down by Stalin down to four people. Right. None of them were around him. There are theories that there were other guards somewhere in the building, but there was nobody between him and the hitman. Well, I read somewhere that those other uh, security personnel that were in the building all happened to be NKVD agents. Yes, who worked for Stalin. Who, and also were the guys who put, who hired Nikolaev to assassinate Kirov. If, he, if it's true. Yeah. If it's true. If it's true. Yeah. So Kirov walks past Nikolaev, Nikolaev leans out from the edge of the wall and fires right into the back of Kirov's skull. Down he goes, dead. Huge hullabaloo. It's 
it, it's a very effective propaganda if it was a murder. In his secret speech in 1956, Khrushchev, when he's starting the de-Stalinization process, actually mentions just what Kevin had said about Nikolaev and having his gun returned to him. Um, and he squarely at that time laid the blame at Stalin's feet for the assassination. And that was when? That 56. was 1956. That was okay. after Stalin's death. But since then, new documents have come out. Um, Khrushchev was trying to consolidate his own power at the time. So he had certain things he had to do as well. So it's it's not quite certain. It looks quite likely. Well, let's let's look at some of the specific things that happened shortly after the assassination. All right. Commissar Borisov, the bodyguard butler, died the day after the assassination while falling from a moving truck that he was riding in with a group of NKVD agents. On his way to uh, to be interviewed about the assassination. Yeah. Oh, I see. He fell from the truck because he was a doddering old man. Oh, no, yeah. no one else uh-huh. had a, no one else was injured in the car accident. Uh, Borisov's wife was committed to an insane asylum. Nikolaev himself was interviewed by Stalin personally, which would have been in- incredibly unusual for the head of the state to interview an assassin in to an investigation. To get on a train and race to, yeah. <laughs> race to Leningrad to interview the guy himself. Nikolaev was tried alone and in secret and then sentenced to death on December 29th, merely 28 days after the incident, and shot the very same night. Nikolaev's wife was executed three months after her husband. So if he did hire him, he then double-crossed him and shot him? Or did they fake his death? <laughs> no, there's a double-crossing and shooting. Okay. There weren't a lot of fake deaths in Stalinist Russia. No. Uh, Nikolaev's mother, brother... All these, all these people that have been unaccounted for. That was <laughs> well, you, just, you just kill somebody else and go, that's him, I shot him in the face, and uh, then the guy goes off and lives somewhere else. Oh, like, like his wife and his mother and his brother and his sisters and a cousin and some close friends who were all arrested and executed well, as well? he needed his friends near him in his new life. <laughs> of course, of course. This is like... Uh, <laughs> the witness relocation program. Right. Yeah, it's gone amok, right? The so assassin We're just, just going to move the whole town. Or maybe this is more like a Viking funeral where they're all yeah. being shot so they can be in Valhalla together. Instead right. of renaming all the people and moving the people, we're just going to rename the town. Right. Yeah, same yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> 104 defendants who were already in prison at the time of Kirov's assassination and who had no demonstrable connection to Nikolaev were found guilty of complicity in this fascist plot against Kirov and were summarily executed. So convenient finger pointing on the part of Stalin to get rid of some political enemies that he hadn't figured out how to get executed yet. So yeah, a lot of the signs that maybe this was a concerted effort to get rid of Kirov. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where if you're sitting in a room full of academics, they'll go, well, there's no exact evidence, blah, 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 blah. Thing ends, everyone goes out, has a drink and goes, oh my God, he's so guilty. We know he did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no smoking gun. There's no document of Stalin signing saying hire Nikolaev and then kill him and his entire family. Right. They, at the very end of the Soviet Union, 1989, Gorbachev, uh, put together a commission headed by, uh, Yakovlev to actually look into it. And their, their conclusion was, we don't think he did it. So that was the last official say from the Soviet Union. That Stalin Union, wasn't involved. That Stalin wasn't involved. So maybe he really did like Kirov, and that's why he wiped out all of Nikolaev's friends and family. Mm, there you as go. A, as a little See, vengeance. That's, that's possible. I... <laughs> oh, as he snickers. He so did it. He, he <laughs> yeah, so did come it. Come on. When World War II was over, Uncle Sam said, boys, go home. No one had to twist my arm, I came back across the phone. Now things are in a mess again, the world is all agog. Old Joe Stalin in Moscow's eating too high on the hog. Mr. Stalin, you're eating too high on the hog. Mr. Stalin, quit feeding 
those lies to your mom. Now, Joe, you'd better change your way, or like Hitler, you will pay for eating too high on the hog. Joe's getting up in age, but to say he ain't so dumb, he knows all about ships and tanks and maybe atom bums. If he keeps eating like he is, at his own discretion, one of these days he's gonna wake up with American indigestion. Mr. Stalin, you're eating too high on the hog. Mr. Stalin, quit feeding those lies to your mom. We know that you've got armies, and we know that they're big, but don't forget the ham is close to the tail end of the pig. office boys they came to the un and made a lot of noise they're only taking orders that come across from you but your hammer and sickle just won't fit our red white and blue mr stalin you're eating too high on the hog mr stalin quit feeding those lies to your mom now listen joe you know that you aren't used to eating meat act your age be yourself stick to kremlin wheat mr stalin you're eating Mr. Stalin, quit feeding those lies to your mom. Now, we aren't hunting trouble, but we ain't never run. Let's all live and let live, Joe. Remember the rising sun? Quit eating too high on the hog. This was basically the first incident that led to what is now known as the Great Terror. It's also called the Great Purge. The Great Purge, exactly. That's Uh, a great purge. (laughs) This is when you eat. Too much borscht, and then you have to purge. Yeah, this is a—it's uh, actually a campaign of political repression that was orchestrated from 1936 to 1939. Okay, targets included Communist Party and government officials, wealthy peasants, and Red Army leadership. The period of the most intense purge, the years of 37 and 38, is sometimes referred to as Yezhovshina, after Nikolai Yezhov, the new head of the Soviet secret police, the NKVD, because the prior one, Yagoda got caught up in the whole Kirov thing, and he himself was put on trial. Yeshov uh, was responsible for 800,000 people dying in this particular area. Um, 800,000? Seems low. Over a 16-month period. There, yeah. there were more than that, but you spoke of the uh, Yevo- Yevo- Ye- Yezhov Shina. Yeah. I don't speak Russian, by the way. I should point <laughs> that out, which literally translates as the Yezhov regime. His executions were 50,000 people per month. That's 1,700 a day for 500 days. Yeah, that's that's a you know that's a run. It's a full time job. That's, that's, a, that's a full time job. That's not the busiest executioner though. <laughs> yeah, the, no. At this time, but uh, the, the great number of the accusations were based on forced confessions obtained by torture. Methods included repeated beatings, simulated drownings, making prisoners stand or go without sleep for days, and threats to arrest and execute their families. Every NKVD unit had a minimum number of arrests and confessions they needed to extract in order to unmask conspiracies. To speed up the procedure, prisoners were often forced to sign blank pages of pre-printed interrogation folios on which the interrogator would later type up the confession. <laughs> so they, they were completely uninterested in getting to the actual truth. They just wanted people to die and have some paperwork to back it up. They, they had mm-hmm. a quota. They mm-hmm. literally yeah. had a quota of how many turncoats they, they would had to uncover. they their quotas. Yeah. As, as everyone wants to do to look good in a, in a quota-based system. Do you want to have the minimum amount of flair? <laughs> 
Yeah, very poignant and appropriate reference there, Joe. Uh, show trials were arranged for high-profile Communist Party and government officials. Stalin's former allies, Zinoviev and Kamenev, were put on trial first. Stalin gave them assurances that death sentences would not be carried out as a condition for confessing to their crimes. But after the trial, Stalin broke this promise and had both men as well as most of their relatives shot. The final show trial in March of 1938 was known as the Trial of the 21. It had 21 defendants, if you can believe it. It is one of the most famous because of the persons involved and the scope of the charges. Uh, the defendants included Nikolai Bukharin, the former chairman of the Communist International, the former premier Alexei Rykov, and Gen- Yenrik Yagoda, the recently disgraced former head of the NKVD. On the first day of the trial, one defendant caused a sensation when he repudiated his written confession and pled not guilty. However, he changed his plea the next day after special measures, which dislocated his left shoulder. Oh, special measures. Is that mm-hmm. what they're calling it now? Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, they said, uh, they, they, he goes, he goes, I recant my written confession. I am not guilty of all charges. You hear the needle scratch on the record machine that's like playing the, uh, you know, uh, the Sma- particularly communist. Smash cut to next day with him and his shoulder in a sling. Oh, yeah, I did it. <laughs> that is exactly what happens. You misquoted me yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Bukharin himself held out for three months, but threats to his young wife and infant son finally caused him to give in. However, when it came to read his confession in court, he withdrew his statement and his examination had to start all over again with double the interrogators. He, ev- oh. he eventually confessed and was executed as well, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, everybody confessed and was executed. Yeah. What's, what I find particularly terrifying about the, this, per- period? The, this period, well, especially the 37-38 period, which the was the purge. big purge of the officers. Mm-hmm was a lot of them knew Stalin personally and would write letters to him saying, I'm so sorry, I don't know where I went wrong. I love you. I love Russia. I will go to my death with your name on my lips. And they were sincere going, I can't believe I'm so horrible. Yeah. They, they just, everyone was, their will was crushed. Their hopes were crushed. Mm-hmm. They, they'd been living in terror so long. When the, the Cheka, which was the secret police, the, the Stalin secret police, or a different version of the NKVD, yeah. when they would come to doors at night, half the time their knocks would be answered with a single gunshot coming from the other side of the door. People would just, or jumping out of windows. Yeah. Um, people would just disappear and you'd move your seat over where they were and go on. And yeah. That was it. Well, and, and Stalin, uh, you know, by some accounts, was actually kind of sadistic, had that sort of a sadistic sense of humor about it, too. Like Bukharin, who ended up getting, you know, tried and convicted or whatever. But shortly before this, he had uh, his his fo- home was raided and he was told that he was going to be um, expelled from his home that night, that he had one hour to pack up all his belongings and leave. And they didn't care where he went, that because he was a bad communist, he was no longer allowed to live in state uh, mm-hmm. in state quarters. And then, uh, so Bukharin uh, is sitting there about to be expelled and the phone rings and uh, he picks it up and it's Stalin on the other end saying, hey, hey, Bukharin, what's going on? He's like, the secret police are in my house. They're telling me I'm going to be expelled. He's like, that's outrageous. And he like, he says, give me the captain of the secret police. And he, he yells at the guy and berates him and tells him to get out. And then, so the secret police leave and then he hangs up the phone and then starts joking with the head of the secret police who's there in his office with going, ah, Bukharin has no sense of humor. Yeah, he would often, he would set people up, mm-hmm. scare them, and then give them you know like a, a reprieve, a glimmer of hope, like invite them over for a banquet, and then when they got home, the police would arrest them. Yeah, so he was like history's first troll. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's yeah, what a prankster that guy. 
So, I mean, Alan pointed out that under the same period, I mean, there are these these really high-profile show trials that are convicting these, you know, very important communist officials. But at the same time, there are hundreds of thousands of anonymous citizens who are being purged at the same time for uh, primarily political crimes like espionage, wrecking, sabotage, anti-Soviet agitation, and conspiracies to organize uprising and coups. What does wrecking mean in this context? I think pretty sabotage. much the same as sabotage. Yeah, But it, it could also be wrecking morale by complaining yeah okay virtually anything that could be taken the wrong way you'd be called a wrecker and that was it for you it was a nice vague catch-all term that i'm gonna wreck it that's what the that's what that uh oh wreck it ralph wreck it ralph was all about it was a communism Uh, uh, who knew he was a stalinist he does wear a red jumpsuit (laughs) that's very important i think we should look further into that He had just this twisted bent sense of humor he actually had what we would consider a court jester um, one of his bodyguard, who wasn't really a bodyguard because he was a perfumed and, and powdered guy who wore lipstick and kind and of pranced around and did jokes. Very foppish. Uh, his name was Pochner. Uh, and he would perform the deaths of Stalin's enemies. He'd get the transcripts of their executions. Oh, wow. And then perform them in funny voices to the point where when he was doing Zenobia. Sounds like an episode of Caustic Soda. <laughs> Pochner was, a, was a Jewish. And he would do Jewish accents. And he was doing the death of Zenoviev. And Stalin was laughing so hard he was crying, and he was waving at Pochner, stop, stop, you're killing me. Stop it, <laughs> yeah. stop it. You can't, and you can just... Yeah, uh, because Hamenev and Zinoviev were executed at the same time, and Hamenev was like, I'm going to take this like a man, and Zinoviev was begging for his life. He was down on his hands and knees. He was down on his hands and knees begging yeah. for his life and the life of his family because he'd seen his family brought into prison as he was being led to his execution, oh, which, of course, right. was done on purpose. Right. They oh, yeah. wanted them to see that their families were all going to die right before they were executed. So he's begging for his life and the life of his family, and Hamenev is just looking at him going, there's nothing, there's, none of this is going to save your life, so just take it like a man, right? So, yeah, this got was a great deal of amusement for mm-hmm. Stalin later on. Yeah. Uh, in fact, of, of a lot of the unknowns, typically most of them were executed immediately. They were shot usually, but there were so many killings to be carried out, the secret police started to have to get to a little more inventive. One particular NKVD agent, for example, suffocated batches of prisoners with engine fumes in an airtight execution chamber camouflaged as a bread van. So what he'd do is he'd load all these uh, convicted up in the back of this airtight bread van, which had a pipe from the uh, um, from the exhaust piping into the chamber. Piping the smell of freshly baked bread. Mm, freshly and so, baked carbon mm, monoxide. He would, he would seal it up, and then he would drive out to the field where they would bury the bodies, and by the time they got there, they would all be dead. Yeah. So they had to drive them there anyway, so why not use the truck mm-hmm. to do it? Yeah. Ironically, uh, this method was later implemented by some extermination camps for Nazi, in right. Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah I kept yeah. thinking that, wow, they must uh, Germany must have heard about a lot of this because yeah. it seems like they've picked a bunch of it up. And, of course, anyone who, wa- who was convicted who wasn't killed outright were just sent to the Gulag labor camps. Right, because they did need the bodies in the Gulag la- yeah. labor camps. Uh, it's important to note that a lot of non-Russians were also targeted during the Great Terror. American immigrants to the Soviet Union who had emigrated at the height of the Great Depression to find work were routinely rounded up. Many of these Americans would show up at the U.S. Embassy to ask for passports so they could get out of the Soviet Union. Almost all were turned away because, of course, they were now branded as communists or communist sympathizers, only to be arrested outside by waiting NKVD agents and taken to Butovo Field and shot. There was the Polish Operation, which was the name of an NKVD program explicitly tasked to find Polish spies inside the Soviet Union, but was interpreted by agents to mean absolutely all Poles. 
This operation resulted in the execution of 111,091 Polish people. In Leningrad alone, 7,000 citizens were rounded up and executed within 10 days of their arrest. NKVD personnel gathered people with Polish-sounding names from local telephone books in order to speed the process. (laughs) Efficient. Stalin himself wrote an order that demanded agents keep on digging and cleaning out this Polish filth. Children of victims were put in orphanages and brought up as Soviet with no knowledge of their origins. All possessions of the accused were confiscated, leaving the extended families with nothing to live on, which usually sealed their fate as well. No money, no property, nowhere to live, and a lot of them would die from starvation and exposure. As well, intellectual pursuits were targeted and given political motives to justify being purged. (gasps) Not role-playing games. (laughs) No, those were exempt. The most interesting one I found was the meteorological office was violently purged in 1933 for failing to predict whether that was harmful to crops. Ah, Stalin, I was going to say for not having enough meteors. Stalin only once ever had an actual Monday to Friday job, and it was working as an assistant in a meteorological office. I hated those guys so <laughs> oh, much. I get the feeling, yeah. <laughs> uh, sunspot research was judged unmarxist, and 27 astronomers disappeared between 1936 and 1938. Sunspots are anti-communist. Speaking of the personal nature of some of Stalin's purges, a philosopher named Jan Sten was Stalin's private tutor from 1925 to 1928 when Stalin was studying Hegel's dialectic. Uh, Stalin received lessons twice a week, but found it difficult to master even some of the basic ideas, which led him to develop an enduring hostility toward German idealistic philosophy, which he called the aristocratic reaction to the French Revolution. And in 1937, Sten was arrested on the direct order of Stalin, who declared him a chief of the Menshevizing idealists. And on June 19th, Sten was put to death. Yeah, Stalin, he signed... Oh, they have about 40,000 death warrants with Stalin's signature on them. He, he usually he must have just to, had a stamp after a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just a rubber stamp, mm-hmm. yeah. He had ballerinas sent to be killed because they were unmarxist. Right, because they were doing like Swan Lake or some shit. Something wrong. Ballet, I mean, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, writers, poets, you know, you were walking on, on Anybody who had a higher education, basically. Exactly. Stalin did fancy himself a writer. He had been a successful poet in his youth. He was very good at flower arranging. Mm. Uh, he was <laughs> very, very good singer, actually. So he, he had a love affair with the arts, but... He had a love affair with his own arts and not the arts of others, perhaps. Well, even, even with others. But of course, he was so hot or cold and you didn't know which way his moods were. You know, you'd make part one of a two-part film and he'd love it and then you'd make part two and he'd shoot you yeah like eisenstein was forbidden to actually make part two to his uh his his historical epic his yes oh his yeah but he he would reward artists they would live in the best accommodations have the best food until until they went wrong until yeah and you would find yourself in the gulag teaching prisoners to read and write uh uh, the official government position regarding the terror was that it was caused by a loss of central control over mass repression, and regional leaders played a significant role in initiating the purges. Since the opening of the Soviet archives after the end of the Soviet Union in 1991, however, that view has been largely debunked. For instance, Stalin personally directed Yezhov to torture those who were not making proper confessions. He once told him about a specific case. Isn't it time to squeeze this gentleman and force him to report on his dirty little business? Where is he? In prison or a hotel? Prison or hotel. I think he was in a prison. He hotel. Was in a prison. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he was in a prison. He just, you know, uh, thought maybe his accommodations were a little cushier oh, I see. than they well, ought he, to he be. Well, he hadn't spoken as, he, he hadn't confessed as fast as Stalin mm-hmm. thought he should have, so. 
Scholars have come to the conclusion that the Great Purge was devised by Stalin as a vast social engineering campaign with the added benefit of solidifying his political control. The threat of war with Germany heightened Stalin's suspicion of politically marginal populations, and this was part of a plan for the preventive elimination of potential recruits for an as-yet non-existent fifth column. Well, I I can understand how, yes, you could say, I'm going to scare everybody into doing what I say. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it also makes people go, you know, we should really kill that guy before he kills us. Like, I'm surprised that didn't happen more. It's all about who pulls the strings for the secret police, right? Whoever has the secret police on yeah. speed dial. Well, the thing about the Soviet Union at that time, or, or the Russian Empire before that, is the vast bulk of its population was an uneducated peasantry. Mm. They, they simply didn't have the ability to rise up, especially once they're on collectivized farms. Right. Now you can't even withhold your grain from the state and starve the cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You certainly don't have weapons. You might have farm implements, but against tanks and, and that sort of thing. So the bulk yeah, that of the rapid people, industrialization like created a real army. You know? Right, exactly. These aren't guys but on horseback with sabers anymore. I'm just thinking, you know, get a pistol and shoot him. Mm-hmm. Were, were there not attempts on Stalin's life like like that? Or but he owned all the information gathering entities, like the people who would who would tell him about these plots. Mm-hmm. You know, they were all loyal to him, right? But it barely has to be a plot. It could be the, the you know, the, a one-off person with the a brother well, of a guy who but got you, killed. That means you got to get close to Stalin. Yes. How easy was that? I don't know. Not very Very easy. difficult. In, yeah. in okay. his personal dacha, or one of his personal dachas, he had one called the Nira dacha. What's a dacha? Dacha, uh, a private mansion. Okay. Uh, and this one was 15-minute ride from where he worked in Moscow. Um, the, the entire house was designed in such a way that there were sensors on every door, in the furniture. So wherever Stalin moved, his personal bodyguard could tell exactly where he was. Oh, he's up. He's up moving around. He's gone into the washroom. He's over here without wow. seeing him. So you didn't even have the guards who had guns in the same room with him. That's mm-hmm. right. They just, But they knew where he was at all times. Yeah. So it was like, I mean, he, his paranoia probably is what kept him alive I for so. 30, 30 odd years. That and right? every now and then clean house and kill everybody around you. Well, I mean. Don't give anyone a chance to build up mm-hmm. plans against you. I mean, another good question in this, and maybe you can speak to this, Joe, is like, who was the only person in this era who probably had the political capital to actually knock Stalin off of his pedestal? It was probably Trotsky. Mm-hmm. But Stalin took care of that, too. He had yeah. him banished from the Soviet Union. He was banished and he went to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Stalin had an assassination task force that was put together to hunt him in Mexico, where he'd taken refuge. Uh, Trotsky survived a raid in his home by armed assassins. Trotsky's 14-year-old grandson was shot in the foot, while one bodyguard was abducted during the attack and later killed. A few months later, undercover NKVD agent Ramon Mercator asked Trotsky to read something he had written, and while he was looking down, Mercator struck him in the head with an ice axe. (laughs) Check this out. The blow failed to kill him. uh, I remember, like, you know, when you heard this in history, I remember it always being typified as an ice pick. So I always thought of that, like, that really thin little kind of spike that, you, you, you know, in the 50s they used to break up blocks of ice with. But that's not actually the case, is it? Well, I've, I've this actually, is more like one of these climbing axes, well, that's, isn't that's, it? Well, that's that's where I have a problem with when you see the translation. I, I do tend to think it was some form of ice pick. Okay. Um, because I, I imagine, I, I know very little about Mexico City in that time period. Oh, no, it's an ice axe. It is. There's the picture. It's got a pick on one side and a, 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 kind of an axe head on the other side. Um, I'm just trying to imagine why anyone would have an ice axe in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody would suspect it because they didn't know what it was. He brought it for he brought it for the making a statement. Uh-huh. Uh, this no. is all the way from snowy Russia. Well, I'm just trying uh-huh. to you know you're going through the airport and they're going, why do you have an ice axe? Well, they probably didn't know what it was. 
It's like he's like I uh, guess unless it was an implement actually used in the ice industry because mm-hmm. I, I, I would imagine so. in the fifties in Mexico they were probably still using they didn't have ice cubes you buy a block of ice and break yeah. it up oh that's probably right. Uh, the blow failed to kill Trotsky. Witnesses stated that Trotsky spat on Mercator and struggled with him. However, <laughs> he died the next day in hospital from blood loss and brain injury. Mercator, captured by Trotsky's bodyguards, was turned over to the Mexican authorities, convicted of murder by a Mexican, Mexican court, and sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was released in 1960 and moved to Havana, Cuba, where Fidel Castro's revolutionary government welcomed him. In 1961, Mercator subsequently moved to the Soviet Union and was presented with the country's highest decoration, Hero of the Soviet Union, by the head of the KGB. So, I seem to remember, too, something about, like, Mercator pretty much denied that he was a Soviet agent the whole time that he was going, being interrogated in exactly. prison the whole time. And then he gets out of prison, goes straight to Cuba, and then used that as a launching pad to go back to Russia, yeah. where he receives a re- Hero award of the Soviet Union. <laughs> the highest the decoration from the KGB. So, so it sort of seems like uh, a, uh, a hollow vic- uh, a hollow claim it was after the, the fact. It was the it wasn't me defense. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would it would be, I think, politically expedient to deny it at the time. A global murder agents being sent out. I mean, even the Soviet Union wasn't supposed to be sponsoring assassinations. Globally. In Mexico. <laughs> in Exactly. In, in foreign powers. So I could see him saying, no, 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 I had nothing to do with it until he's free. And now it's. Game on. Yeah. Double thumbs up. Exactly. Way to go, Joe. Yeah, I don't think he would have been welcomed had he admitted it right off the bat. They, w- they would have gone, no, never. And if he ever returned, yeah. they would be like, let's kill this guy who made us look bad. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. you know, Stalin uh, might have had a few assassins under his employ. Executioners. Oh, he certainly had an executioner. I've got one I can talk about. All right, let's hear it. Vasily Blokin? was a Soviet major general who served as the chief executioner of the Stalinist NKVD under the administration of Yagoda, Yezhov, and Beria. Ironically, after their respective falls from power, Yagoda and Yezhov were also executed by Blokin himself. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you're, 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 you're number one executioner, the guy that you're using to like cut down all your political enemies, and then you got to stare down the barrel at him. So you, like, at least you yeah. know he's a professional. What's the word in Russian for karma? Karmanov. I think it's just karma. (laughs) Handpicked for the position by Stalin, Blokin led a company of executioners that performed and supervised all executions during Stalin's reign. Blokin was entrusted with every major execution under Stalin's regime and personally executed tens of thousands of prisoners. Well, when you're executing millions, you know, tens of thousands is kind of just a drop in the bucket, right? Yeah. His most infamous act was the 1940 K-10 massacre, or possibly mascara. (laughs) Polish military and police officers were interned in a POW camp. This is after being captured in the invasion of Poland in 1939. Yeah, that was where Germany, like, divided Poland in half, and Germany took half, and Russia took the other half. Yeah, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Yeah. Stalin issued a secret order to new NKVD chief Beria, ordering all of the prisoners to be executed. Blokin set an ambitious quota of 300 executions per night in order to complete the job over 28 consecutive nights. The prisoners were identified before being handcuffed and led into the execution room, specially constructed in the basement of the local NKVD headquarters. The room had padded walls for soundproofing. That's kind of necessary for an execution chamber, Mm -hmm. I would say, especially if you're going to do 300 in a night. A sloping concrete floor with a drain and hose and a log wall for the prisoners to stand against. Hmm. 
Bloken would stand well, in you, wait. You don't want the bullets to like bounce off a concrete wall and hit the people or shooting. Or create concrete shrapnel or yeah. whatever, right? Yeah, that would totally happen. Bloken would stand in wait behind the door dressed in a leather butcher's apron, leather hat, and shoulder-length leather gloves. As each prisoner was brought in, Bloken shot them once in the base of the skull. So he was kind of like an executioner slash, you know, fetish dude. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't wearing anything else but. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just a bare ass. Yeah. The, body- the, the last thing you see is Blocken's balls like, oh, God, the, the insult to injury. Yeah, they, they were begging for death. The bodies were loaded into covered flatbed trucks through a back door in the execution chamber and trucked twice a night to an unfenced site where a bulldozer disposed of the bodies. 24 to 25 trenches were dug to hold the night's corpses and were covered up before dawn. Bloken and his team worked without break for 10 hours each night, with Bloken executing an average of one prisoner every two minutes. That's, that's fast. That seems fast to me. That seems fast to me. You barely have enough time to get the body out of the room before the next guy's coming in. And they would rinse off the floor. They, they were hosing the floor. Like, yeah. this was, this, these guys were on Machines. fire. Like, he, he actually had a, a, a case full of different guns. So that, you know, the, bar- the barrel's going to heat up after a while and the-, and the performance of the weapon will drop or oh, it'll right. jam. Right. So he would, he would switch. More bullets. And more bullets. More and guns. he would just work through his guns all evening. I just keep wondering if he had like some sort of tendonitis in his yeah. trigger finger. Yeah. So just repetitive stress syndrome. Repetitive from- stress syndrome. Exactly. Maybe he could shoot with two hands. Maybe he could oh. shoot ambidextrously. Yeah, I mean, yeah. When you, when I feel you like so many shooting. You know, we went to the gun range for the gun episode. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, you know, if I was shooting like somebody every two minutes, my not only would my arm get tired, but my ulna would shatter or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, not only yeah. that, like uh, you know, when you're putting the gun up against the base of somebody's skull, it's you don't need to really have a great aim, right? You no, know? I mean, exactly. You could you could shoot it with your left yeah. hand or right hand, depending on your preference. Yeah, sideways or upwards. I mean, you're gonna be. Like, I'm not minimizing these people's death, but it's got to be mind-numbing. I would set up some yeah. kind of MacGyver-like device to hold the the pistol so I could, like, hit a button easier than have to have all the shock go through my arm a, a every single A foot pedal? Day. Yeah, like, right. you know, you, just, you yeah. just come in, hit a button, and a thing goes click and pulls the trigger on the gun that you've put into the, the grip. Well, he's got a commitment him. to his craft. I guess so. Yeah. In April 1940, Bloken secretly received the Order of the Red Banner and a modest monthly pay premium as a reward for his skill and organization and the effect of carrying out of special tasks. There's that term special again. Yeah. Special task, like special, what was the special the special interview or whatever during the show trial that dislocated that guy's shoulder? That, <laughs> special measures. Special measures. <laughs> he shot 7,000 prisoners in 28 days, which remains the most organized and protracted mass murder by a single individual on record and earned him the Guinness World of Record for most prolific executioner in 2010. Well, so there's a silver lining. Yeah, you know, did, did they give him a medal for that? Did he, uh... I just gave him more bullets. Uh, there you go. Gold bullets. After uh, after Stalin died, um, a few years later, he actually was Blokhin was stripped of his pension, and died uh, of an alcoholic uh, suffering depression. And I imagine some sort of PTSD would have been mixed in there as well. Yeah, I think he was actually his death was officially ruled a suicide. Yeah, and in, in, like very shortly after Stalin died, like within a couple of years. Yes. Uh, so it's like you know, it's it's like. Um, you know, little old ladies when their cats die, and then they go like a couple months later, right? right. <laughs> Stalin dies, and so goes the chief it's, executioner. It's exactly like that. Yeah. 
It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside, and when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling, an ominous feeling, a feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new. And we'll have more gross facts for you. And you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while undergoing buckyball therapy. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Tweet us on Twitter, at Caustic Podcast. Or email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening.